0: This afternoon. If you haven't picked up your baby bottles or bottle, please do so. Start filling them up. That would be appreciated. Take your Trinity. My throat's about shot. I began having throat trouble on the way home from Texas. I told Tricia, I think, Friday. Something's going on. So it took everything out of me this morning. But uh, thankfully, we have someone else to preach this afternoon. Trinity 133. 133,04,000 tons to sing. Let's stand as we sing. to come and meet with us. Jason, I see you have a handful. Could you lead us in prayer? Are you all right to do that? In our consecutive leading through the Old Testament, we now come to Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. There's a lot of controversy that surrounds this book. There is the thought that it's a book that should never be read publicly. I'm not sure I'm convinced of any of that reality. It is a love letter. It's a love letter between two. And sometimes in the midst of reading it, some things that are said that may make us feel a bit uncomfortable, but it's a romance, it's romantic, um, and perhaps some of us men could glean from things about being more romantic uh, with our wives from what we read here in this song that is a song of love between two. Uh, many believe and only interpret it as an allegory concerning Christ and his church, but I, I'm not unwilling to take that position as well. So even though as I've started reading and looking through this, there are a lot of good things, and I, I was tempted, and I've got to be careful because I want to leave Micah time to preach as well, but uh, it's interesting, Mr. Spurgeon preached over 50 sermons from the Song of Solomon. Now, most of them are probably allegorical, turning Christ in his church, but I found it interesting that he would preach over 50 sermons. Sometimes when you're in love and you're love-struck, you may say some things that others listening to you might say, well, that's strange, that's a strange way of putting something, like we will read today here in chapter 1 he, he looks at his his darling and says, you're like a mare, a horse. And, and I've never tried that with my wife, you know. Uh, I'm not sure she would find that all that romantic. There's a couple other times where he says something that as you read through it, I'm thinking, I may try that on my wife, you know. Um, she may not find it as romantic. But but sometimes you, you say things, you, you have pet terms with, with someone. I mean, if you would have known... My wife and I, when we were dating and heard us talk or see the letters we'd write to one another, I I always referred to her as my little rabbit. Now, if you heard me call my wife a rabbit, you would think, well, why does he think of her as a little rabbit? Well, there is a story behind it. I won't go into it. But that was my pet name for her in those days. She was my little rabbit. All right, now... It's not something that you would naturally say to someone you love, but that meant something to her. In fact, I got her to finally sign her letters, Your Little Rabbit. All right? So I think she still has all those. I don't know. Um, but anyway, that's, it's, just, it's a love song. And so, uh, but primarily we'll just read through it. I'm not going to make a lot of comments as we go through it, I don't think. Um, but I will say that R.C. Sproul... Um, when he did a series on wisdom and brought in Song of Solomon, he says, The church was embarrassed by the sensuous sensuous imagery of the Song of Solomon and read it allegorically to get around its approval of marital intimacy. This reflects the Greeks' philosophers and their assumption that matter And physical relations are evil. Yet the scripture does not say that the spirit is good and the body is bad. Our father commands us to multiply and fill the world that was originally very good. Sex within marriage is good and holy. Thus Solomon's song needs not to embarrass us. He goes on to say, we might rightly apply the song of Solomon illustratively to Christ and his church. Solomon's song can indeed lead us to Jesus without violating the book's content. But he reminds us, Mr. Sproul does, that it is possible only if we first read it in its plainest literal sense. A spirit-inspired expression of love between a bride and her groom. A love that is not to be ashamed. So with that in mind, we will now begin reading through Song of Solomon, chapter 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oil have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like a purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into this chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad we will extol your love more than wine. Rightly, do they love you? I am black and lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am thwarthy, for the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They make me careta- they make me caretaker of the vineyards. But I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, O oh you whom my soul loves, where do, you past, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself besides the flock flocks of her companions? If you yourselves do not know, most beautiful among the women... Go forth on the trail of the flock and the pastures of your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. To me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with string beads. We will make for you ornaments of gold with beads of silver. While the king was at his table, My perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh, which lies all night between my breast. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyard of Injidai. How beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. The beams of our house are cedars, our rafters, cypresses. And that's where we will stop our reading this afternoon. I will mention that I believe it's, I know Dr. Sinclair Ferguson has a series on the Song of Solomon. And I just started listening to that, and it's very good. So if you want to maybe look into that, it's there as well. Well, now before Micah comes to open the Word of God, let's take our Trinity hymn books again, turning to number 26. Number 26, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past. 26 Trinity. Let's stand as we sing
1: If you've been here for the past uh, few messages in this series on the attributes of God, we've entitled this series, Behold Our God, because I hope that isn't, isn't just an intellectual exploration or exercise for us. Truly, I want us to behold the glory of the Lord, as we gaze into his being, as Paul says at the end of Second Timothy chapter three, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. So just as a a devotional note at the start of this message, as we as we look into the attribute of immutability, and that's the title, Behold Our God, immutable, and as we gaze into His unchanging being and who He is for us, I hope that as we gaze into the one who is not changeable, that we would be changed. As we gaze into the face of Jesus Christ, who is the enfleshed incarnate expression of God to us, God in human flesh, who's accomplished our salvation, I hope that we'll be transformed into his holy image as we see and savor and delight in who he is. Uh, we're going to be in uh, James chapter 1 and primarily in verses 17 and 18 this afternoon. But as you, uh, as you turn there and before we read the text, sort of by way of illustration to get us thinking along the right lines about God's immutability, think about all the different ways that our lives are marked by change as creatures. We might say if something bad happens to someone and that person who was once a happy and a joyful person becomes bitter and self-centered because of their circumstances in life, we might say this person has changed. And oftentimes we talk about change as if it's a marked difference in someone's character, and we sort of relegate human change to that as a change in character. But if you if you really think about it, change marks everything about our lives, doesn't it? It's more than just going from being one type of person to being another type of person, just like God's lack of change, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, is more than just His sameness of character. It's an immutability of a different kind as well. But we change in all sorts of different ways as creatures. Everything about us is marked by change. We hear someone's testimony, and this is a, a character reference, but... We hear someone's testimony, and we say that they're uh, they're growing in Christ, and they talk about things that they uh, patterns of life that they used to walk in, and how the Lord has caused them to crucify their flesh, and now they're walking after the Lord. And you would say this person is changed. The Lord has changed this person's life, and that's a good example of change. That's one way that creatures can change that is positive in creaturely experience. Or, someone gives you their story about how drugs have addled their, their life and consumed everything about them. That's a bad change. That's a, both of those are changes in character. One of them is good and another one is bad. But change is much more comprehensive than just that. Do you ever think about the fact that you and I dwell in time means that we're constantly changing? And I'm not just talking about in terms of age. You know, yesterday I was a certain age. Today I'm this age. Tomorrow I'll be in another age. And especially that's amplified as you go through the years. But even just existing as a creature bound by time, I go from me in this moment to me in the next moment. And then me in the moment following that. And I was me three, I was me in a moment three moments ago. You see sort of how that works? Our lives are stretched over a course of many, many moments that are sort of strung together. So creaturely change is not just in the realm of character. It's also because we are dependent upon time to sort of make up who we are. That's one form of it. Also, we preached a couple weeks ago about God's independence, about how God is self-sufficient and does not stand in need of anything from the creature. But our dependence on all sorts of things around us and especially on God means that we change as well. We change because we're caused to move from one state of being to another state of being. We're changed from one state of being to another state of being because we're dependent on things outside of us to cause us to be We preached on simplicity a couple couple weeks ago as well. But composition, the fact that I am composed of all sorts of different things as a creature, that also means change. Because I can be divided as a composed creature. I can be corrupted. I can be double-minded and shift from one view to another. All of these things, all of these creaturely infirmities, mean that our lives are marked by change because change because change and this is what i'm driving at change is one aspect of finitude we are finite creatures therefore everything about us is in constant flux and really what we're going to see today and this is the first task of whenever you're exploring the doctrine of God or the attributes of God. You take what is creaturely and what is finite. You take what is imperfect in the creature and you strip God of that and you say there's no way that God could possibly have that because he is most perfect. You, you take what is finite and you refuse to predicate it of God because the scripture does not. That's the first task of theology proper. You strip God of all creaturely weakness and finitude because he is the infinite one. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, he is the I am that I am completely perfect and boundless in his being. Simple, uncomposed, independent. So that's what I want us to drive towards today is us to see our change as an aspect of creaturely weakness and to see that we have a God who is not like us. And that's exactly what we see in James chapter 1, verses uh, 17 and 18. Let's uh, read these uh, couple of verses together. James chapter 1, verse 17, this is the word of God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless his word this morning or this afternoon. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know that we are only here, and we are only worshiping you in spirit and in truth because of the gospel work of your Son. Thank you that your Son's blood cleanses us from every stain of sin, and we are united to him in his death and resurrection, and so we approach you this afternoon as people who are new creatures in Christ. The old things have passed away, the new has come, and part of the new is what we are experiencing this afternoon, worshiping you in spirit and in truth. I pray that your spirit would enable me to declare your word to your people this morning. I pray that Christ would make himself known in a mighty and awesome way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So James says that every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. But in order to sort of get a taste for the context of this passage, in order to see how James derives the doctrine of God's immutability from it, I think we need to sort of look at some of the verses that lead up to this point in verses 17 and 18. Just as an example, look at verse 2 with me and following. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He says, count it all joy when your faith is tested. So God, according to James, is not testing because he wants, because he has ceased in his love for you. We're supposed to count it joy when we are tested because God is doing something in this testing. And he says that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God has a purpose for your testing. It's not as if he has gone from loving you to now hating you. It's not as if you've gone from his child to being his enemy. It's not as if he has changed in any way. That's sort of where James is building to. James is saying that we are to count it joy even when we come into fiery trials because God, because God's good purpose shines in it. And then look at James 1.5. This reinforces it. James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that purpose, or that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. So James wants to build confidence in his hearers of God's immutably generous disposition towards his people. He's saying, if you have want of something, if you have want of wisdom, go to the throne. God looks on you in love and overflowing goodness, just as yours accounted joy in your trials, because those trials don't come from the hand of one who hates you. They come from the hand of one, one who loves you unchangingly, so you're supposed to if you lack wisdom, you're supposed to go to the source of all wisdom and the God who gives generously to all of His people. So do you see that there's a pattern being established? God's unchanging, good disposition toward His people, even in trials, even if we lack wisdom. Then verse uh, one, ver, uh, chapter 1, verse 9 as well. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits so James tells them don't boast in your lot in life if you're lowly, boast in your exaltation. If you're rich, boast in your, humil- in your humiliation. Don't put all your chips in what you've got going on down here. That's what James is saying. He's saying don't be prideful of your present situation. Instead, James is trying to create in these people an eternal orientation. He's trying to create in his people a hope that is not in their present circumstances because of what he has already said. Because this is the God who is unfailingly good to his people. He's trying to create in his people a bedrock hope in the unchanging God who does not change even though our circumstances might. And this is actually... As an aside, this is absolutely antithetical to my generation. My, have you? It's a silly term, but have you ever heard the term YOLO? It's it's a it's a silly acronym that my generation uses, and it it stands for you only live once. And the idea behind it is that you act frivolously now. You act in the sense of your highest pleasure right now. You indulge the urges of your flesh now because, hey, you only live once. James is trying to produce in these people, and he's using the doctrine of God's immutability and eternity to do it. He's trying to produce in these people the exact opposite ethos from that. He's trying to say, no, do not live for right now. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of grass, he will pass away. You are changing. Your present circumstances are passing away. But there stands on the other side of this life that is passing away, a God who does not. A God who does not change. A God who is eternally who he is. The I am that I am. Our beauty fades, our riches run out, we perish. So ultimately, what James is trying to do in this first chapter of this letter, and we see it crystallized in verses 17 and 18, but you see how it's building up before that too. He's trying to cement in the hearts of his hearers God's good covenantal disposition toward his people. And he's trying to do that and show them that it is the ground of their perseverance and faith. James is trying to work perseverance into these people as no matter what their lot in life is, no matter how much intense suffering they might be going through. He's trying to say that God's good covenantal disposition towards him, by which whatever comes into their life ultimately comes from the hand of a loving father, And if they lack any wisdom, they can go to him because he he is an overflowing fountain of good to his people. He's trying to tell them to essentially, what Paul says, seek the things that are above. Because everything in this life is simply temporary. Everything in this life is changing, wearing out like a garment. But there is one who does not. So, all of our hope... And all of our boasting is to be in God whose promises are absolutely untarnished and unfading because his being is untarnished and unfading, the same tomorrow as it is today, the same yesterday as it is today. He is just the God who is. Trials driving us to Christ in faith are fitting us in James's In James's speech here for a crown. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So you see the promises of God here. James is saying that trials which drive you to Christ in faith are fitting you for a crown from the God who does not change. Total trust in God's overflowing, unbounded goodness to us manifested in his promises. That's what James is after in this first chapter. But the enemy might come to you, or some, or an unbeliever might come to you, and say, how do you know? How do you know that God can't fail to deliver on his promises to you? How do you know that, that crown of life that you've been promised and the fact that you're invested in eternal life instead of your pleasures now? How do you know that he's actually going to deliver on that? How do you know that he can carry, to, carry you to the end? How do you know that he can finally deliver you into the kingdom of Christ? How do you know that he won't fail you? How do you know he'll be truthful to his promises? Someone might come and object that. So James gives us what he gives us in the main two verses that I want to look at. He gives us this illustration in verse 17 along with the truth that he says in verse 18. James's illustration here is really the key that unlocks this doctrine of divine immutability and it grounds God's promises in this text. Let's look at James' illustration. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So what does James mean by Father of lights? What is he saying there? What does he mean, Father of lights? And furthermore, what does he mean by there's no variation or shadow due to change? How is this phrase connected with the Father of lights? I think that what becomes immensely clear is if we connect these verses with verse 11. What does James talk about already in verse 11? He talks about... Uh, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He's already talked about the rising and the setting of the lights in heaven in this chapter. He's already talked about the variation that you might see in the experience from a creaturely perspective in the patterns of the sun and those varying effects that uh, that those patterns and changes have on what is under its influence. The sun rises and it's incredibly hot that day and it scorches what's underneath it. Other days it's cold and it freezes. The varying of the sun, the varying of the patterns of the heavenly lights, as James talks about them, produces different effects underneath those lights. So James is using an illustration from astronomy. As we said, the lights refer to heavenly bodies. The sun and all of its companions go through seasonal changes, sometimes brighter, sometimes dimmer, sometimes hotter, and sometimes cooler. And we know this from experience, don't we? Have you ever went out at night and at one point in the month it will seem like it's just pitch black out? Like you can't see two feet in front of you. And then at another point in the month, you'll go outside and you'll think, "Wow, it's almost like it's almost like there's street lamps," <laughs> because the moon is so bright in its reflection of the sun's rays. There's this variation of the lights in heaven. I, as just as, an, as a personal illustration to kind of uh, drive this point, we were uh, when I was in high school, we used to like to we used to like to play hide and seek on my uncle and aunt's farm. And there's not, you know, this is out in Hudson, so there's not street lamps, there's no lighting whatsoever. Well, one time we were playing, and it was incredibly, incredibly dark. It was pitch black, so it was a perfect night for this game. And my cousin Nate hears someone coming, and he takes off. And he's a college football player at this point, so he's running pretty fast. But in his way is a stump of a tree that he didn't see, and it's about at thigh level. And he runs into this stump and tumbles, rolling head over heels. And I think that he would still say that when it rains, he can feel that injury. <laughs> it, uh, it, it hampers him to this day because of the effects of the giving of the light of these heavenly bodies. This variation in the heavenly light in the in the heavenly lights had a negative impact on him in that moment it was there but it was there for his ultimately for his ill what james is saying is that this variation that we see in the heavenly bodies is ultimately not something that we see in God. God is not changing in variation in his being sometimes for your good and sometimes to do you harm. Just like the heavenly lights sometimes, you know, sometimes the sun will scorch the crops and sometimes it'll be good for the crops. That is not how God is toward his children. That's what James is saying. He's saying that God is always unvaryingly, the overflowing fountain of goodness and love towards you in Christ that he has been in the past. So, in every way that creatures change, God does not. God undergoes or th- think about this, God undergoes no change in his location in scripture we read about this sometimes don't we we hear in uh in Genesis chapter nine the tower of uh, the tower of Babel or maybe it's not chapter nine um in early in Genesis the tower of Babel it says that God came down and it depicts God as if he was moving from one location in heaven to another but if you really think about that, and you compare it with the rest of Scripture, that can't be literal. And it's it's easy to see that. Because in the book of 1 Kings, when Solomon uh, dedicates the temple, he says that how he essentially is is saying to God, how am I supposed to make a house for you when heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you? In other words, God is so infinite and boundless in his being that it is impossible for him to literally move from one place to another because he is the one who already, always fills heaven and earth. So he can't undergo any change in location. God also undergoes no changes in time. Time... Or... uh, God also undergoes no changes in time, just like we talked about. Being uh, bound by time is a mark of creaturely change. But God is in present possession of the totality of his eternal life all the time. At this very moment, he is present at every point in time. Because he exists outside of and independently of time. It is an attribute of his infinity. God also undergoes no change in his state of being. Turn with me to Psalm one hundred two, verse twenty six. Psalm one hundred two, verse twenty six. Or actually, let's, uh, let's read verses 25 and 26. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth. So this is God's creative work. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure, their offspring shall be established before you he goes on he undergoes no change in his state of being like the heavens and everything else that he has created undergoes the heavens one day will be changed they'll go from this fallen or. They, they have changed and they will change again in the future, right? They went from being perfect to being fallen. And one day they will be go from being fallen to resurrected and glorified, just like the Lord Jesus as the head of the new creation. But they are in a constant state of flux and change, just like everything else that He has created. But notice what the psalmist does here. He says, You will change them like a robe. So He, while unchanged Himself is the source of all change in everything else. Uh, Theologians from the past have called him the unmoved mover. He is the one who is moved by nothing, but instead he is the one who bears his weight and has effects on everything else that is outside of him. And notice what the psalmist does as well. This isn't just an intellectual thing for him. Look at verse 27 again. But you are the same and your years have no end. So he grounds his immutability in his eternity. And the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. He grounds the hope of the Israelites. He grounds the hope of the people of God in God in the fact that God does not change like everything else does. This is an absolutely integral Attribute to understand if you're going to have confidence in the promises of the gospel. But, oh, also, think about God's knowledge. God undergoes no change in knowledge. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 1. Turn there with me. Now, us being in a Reformed Baptist church, we have a particular view, and it's a biblical one, Ephesians chapter 1, we have a particular view of God's sovereignty in salvation. We believe that all things are decreed by God, including and especially the salvation of His people in Christ. This leads us to a view of personal election, which Ephesians 1 talks about. But, there are some who will say, you know, actually, that's, that's not how it works. What God actually does is he gains the knowledge of who will believe in the future, sort of looks down the corridor of time, and then in turn he elects that person to everlasting life. So they, they have a view of God's knowledge, that God's knowledge and his decree and his election of a particular individual for salvation is dependent upon the actions of that person that have not taken place yet so these people would stress a dependent and changing knowledge in God because if God goes from one moment to not to not knowing and then goes from into the next moment for and uh, then into the next moment learning, Uh, This person's decision to trust in Christ, that is him going from a state of not knowing to a state of knowing something. So it would say that God is not only not immutable because he gains something and goes from not knowing to knowing, but it would also state that God is dependent upon his creatures to know something that he wouldn't have known otherwise. His knowledge wouldn't then be from himself, it would be from the creature. And that can't be because of everything that we already studied about his aseity and his simplicity. So, Ephesians chapter 1 speaks about the eternal counsel of God. So not only is God's being unchangeable, but also his knowledge of future events is unchangeable because it all flows forth from an unchangeable decree of what will come to be. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in his beloved. This is not a view of the knowledge and decree of God that changes and comes and goes depending upon the choice of the creature. This is a view of the knowledge and decree of God that it is fixed and eternal and unchanging because it flows forth from the immutable God himself. And this is why soteriology is intimately connected to your doctrine of God. This is why I think that not only is our, soteriolo- our, our uh, soteriology and our belief in God's sovereignty and salvation. Not only is it biblical, but it is actually the only view that does justice to who God is in his unchanging being. All things flow forth from him. He receives nothing. He is the one who does not change. But there are some who might say that this sort of strong sense of immutability, meaning God doesn't undergo time or doesn't go unchange within the realm of time. He doesn't undergo change within the realm of knowledge. He doesn't undergo change in location. He doesn't go from one state of being to the next like creatures do, actualized by things outside of him that pull on him. Some might say that this actually limits God. This is actually an argument that sort of takes place in the context of 20th century Reformed theology. Sort of an in-house debate. But there are some who say that if God does not undergo some kind of change, then he can't be relational. Because in creaturely terms, we think, of, we think of being relational as being willing to change and mold with one another, don't we? We think of being relational as a person being a, in a give-and-take, mutualistic relationship. If I'm talking with Andrew, and Andrew comes to me with a particular grief, let's say he's really, uh, he's really sad about something, he's grieving something, and he's, and he's coming to me for help with it, for encouragement. If I seem unmoved and unfazed and unchanged by Andrew's grief, what is Andrew going to think about me? He, he might think I'm a jerk. He might think that I don't care about him. He might think that I'm sort of this inert, feelingless, just bad person so we think of change in a creaturely sense as a good thing something that is absolutely essential for one another for us to relate to one another and we think of it like this because we live in a creaturely context but this type of change, this type of mutuality between creatures where we're actualized by one another and we come into a different state of emotional being because of things like this, ultimately that is not a sign of creaturely perfection It is really a sign of creaturely imperfection because it means I have to respond to something outside of me in order to become better in that moment than I previously was. It means that I have to react and react appropriately, coming into a more perfect state of being than I was in before I had that knowledge. So this sort of uh, relational, sort of mutualistic relationship is not a sign of perfection. And that's why we should not want to say that that is true of God, because it's actually a sign of creaturely imperfection. The fact that I need to be emotionally and intellectually brought from one state of being to another is a sign of my creaturely weakness, because it means that I don't have the fullness of knowledge that I should have, or that that God has, ultimately. Maybe not that I should have. Even that kind of change that we experience and see as a good thing in creatures is ultimately a sign of our finitude. It means that we're becoming better. It means that even though it, we, we are good, we are still imperfect. And this type of change cannot be predicated of God. This doesn't make God cold and detached. The fact that he doesn't move from one state of emotional being to to another when we're confronted with our problems. It doesn't mean that he's not relational either. It doesn't make God inert, and it doesn't make talking to him sort of like talking to a rock. Those are all arguments that people have against this uh, doctrine of divine immutability. They would say that it sort of makes God like a boulder, where you're just talking to him, and he's just sitting there unfeeling and unfazed by it. That's not what this means. This actually means the opposite. That's a misunderstanding of immutability. God is not immutable because he, he lacks life, love, affection, or any other perfection. He's not immutable in the sense that a boulder is. He's not just sitting there, not caring and unaware he's immutable because he's the opposite of all of that he's immutable because he is the infinite fullness of life and could not possibly grow in it he's immutable because he's infinitely relational and could not possibly be brought into another state of being by creatures like us he's not immutable because he's like a rock He's immutable because He is the infinite fountain of being that cannot increase or decrease in anything. And James gives us a hint of this reality as well. Look at verse 17, back in uh, James chapter 1. James chapter 1, back in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. This is relational language. This is not language of a detached and cold being. James presents a God who is both totally immutable and he presents a God because he is totally, or who is totally immutable because he is infinitely overflowing in goodness and love toward his people. So, this sign of immutability is not a lack of life, it is the infinite fullness of life. This immutability is not a lack of love on God's part. It is a love so full that it cannot increase or decrease. It is not a lack of working power toward His people. It is a power that can never fail to deliver on God's promises. And this is the testimony of all of Scripture. First Samuel fifteen twenty-nine: The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. You, O Lord, are our dwelling place. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isaiah 46, 4. Even to your old age, I am He. And to the gray hairs, I will carry you, I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. Your salvation and God's covenant relationship to you that your salvation flows out of is absolutely hinging on this attribute of God the reason that God can save you, the reason that God cannot lie, the reason that God is overflowing and unchanging in His power and goodness toward you is because He is immutable and cannot increase or decrease or change in His being at all. This is not just an abstract truth. This is the saving power Of the gospel. This is the immutable God who has immutable promises for his people. And we see this in verse 18, where uh, James talks about our regeneration. Verse 18: Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So, this Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, This God, whom every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from, has manifested that unchanging disposition to do good toward his people by bringing them forth by the word of truth. Ultimately, God's unchanging power and his ability to deliver on his promises to you and save you is is, uh, manifested to you and evidenced to you By the fact that he looked at you when you were nothing but dry bones and said, live. And now he promises you that he will will keep every single one of those promises to you that he initially made for you. You were brought forth by the word of the truth. The promises of the gospel were declared to you. And that's when those dry bones lived and you believed and trusted in those promises. And God is saying... I am the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. Therefore, you can trust me. You can trust me that my power will never be turned into weakness. My truth will never be turned into lies for you. Even when you go through trials like he talks about in verse 2, trust me that it is coming forth from a place that wants to refine you and purify you into the image of Christ. It is me keeping my promises to you. It is not me reneging on my promises to you. If you need wisdom, come to me. Don't only think about your life right now, which is changing, but hedge your bets on eternity in the promises of God, who does not change. Of his own will, he brought you forth by the word of the truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures that that phrase the first fruits of his creatures has reference to the future Christ rose from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection we in him are the first fruits of the resurrection spiritually now so even though our bodies will go into the grave one day they will rise again because we've been made new creatures in Christ filled with the spirit and united to him James is drawing our mind to the future fulfillment of all of God's promises. Not just to us individually, but for all of creation. God did send forth the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. God did renew what Adam broke. Jesus Christ is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. And in Christ... To you, all of God's promises are yes and amen because they're made by the God who does not change. So he'll deliver on them. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though so many things in our lives change, you do not. Thank you that Jesus Christ and his saving power for us is the same yesterday and today and forever. And we just trust in Him. We pray that You would work in us through the power of Your Spirit a deeper trust in Him that would grow into a deeper and more profound holiness that comes from not a place of hypocrisy but genuine love for Christ. We pray that we would delight more in Your promises because they are good and they reflect our good God. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Who's a God like our God? Uh, let's take our hymn books and Trinity hymn books and turn to number 10 in closing. O come my soul, bless thou the Lord, thy maker, and all within me, bless his holy name. Number 10 in the Trinity. <clears throat> let's stand together as we sing.